and brother, every sympathizer, will go back to what Thanksgiving Day means to the Native American. It is a day of mourning. That's Wamsuda Frank James, a CBS News clip featuring him on November 23, 1972, speaking at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts, trying to raise awareness about the plight of Native Americans and why Thanksgiving feels like a day of mourning for many. I'm Umbreen Khan from Interfaith Voices, and this is Inspired. Each week, we explore beliefs that shape how we see the world. In our civic religion, Thanksgiving is arguably a high holy day, replete with rituals of food, rites that include town parades, and symbols of the enduring myths about the pilgrims' relationship to the Wampanoag tribe. I remember learning about the story in elementary school in Portage, Michigan. There were potluck feasts and an all-school assembly that included reenactments of the Mayflower arriving at that famous rock, and lots of us being cast as Indians, myself included, wearing brown construction paper headbands stapled with glued feathers poking out. All the trappings of civil ceremony with costumes and pageantry, but the story was missing many facts painful ones indeed, that didn't match the mood. Key details, Frank James, a beloved Cape Cod music teacher, civil rights activist, and member of the Wampanoag tribe, refused to omit. His granddaughter, Keisha James, tells the story of how the day of mourning began. More than 50 years ago in 1970, Wamsuda Frank James, an Aquinawampanoag tribal member, had been invited by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to speak at a banquet celebrating the 350th anniversary of the arrival of the Pilgrims. The organizers of the banquet no doubt imagined that Wamsuda would give an appreciative and complimentary speech and thanking the Pilgrims for bringing civilization to these shores. However, the speech that Wamsuda wrote which was based on historical fact, was a far cry from complimentary. When state officials saw an advanced copy of Wamsuda's speech, they refused to allow him to deliver it, saying that the speech was too inflammatory. They told him he could speak only if he were willing to offer false praise of the pilgrims. The organizers even offered to write a speech for him, one which would better fit with their settler colonialist narrative. But Wamsutter refused to have words put into his mouth. His suppressed speech was printed in newspapers across the country, and he and other local Native activists began to plan a protest. This year, on the fourth Thursday of November, Jean-Luc Purette, the president of the board of the North American Indian Center of Boston, will be one of the speakers at the Day of Mourning. We spoke on our studio line about his journey into this leadership position and the ongoing struggle facing Indigenous people, which is where our conversation began. This is a a day in which uh, Indigenous activists from across the Americas, um, North, uh, Central, and South America, converge upon Plymouth, Massachusetts, to speak their own truths uh, from the front lines. And so we use that day 
to not just uplift indigenous perspective on, on Thanksgiving, but we really talk about like, what are the issues of the day and what are the fights that all indigenous peoples are facing right now? This year, the talk that I'm going to be giving, uh, going to be reflecting on, uh, 70 years, uh, since termination. Now, for your listeners, that was a, a policy that was adopted by the United States Congress uh, to actually terminate the relationship between the United States government and uh, certain indigenous nations uh, to take out of existence our, our tribal governments, our sense of self-governance, our, our sovereignty, uh, in the hopes that uh, American Indians would actually assimilate uh, into the broader citizenship of the United States and not have our own citizenship within our own indigenous nations. Basically, kind of continue a program of genocide against our peoples in the hopes that we would assimilate, but, you know, that has not been successful. We've been able to hold on to our, to our own nations, to our own uh, sense of self-governance. But even though it wasn't successful, it does have a legacy. How does this fit into the stories that we're hearing about revelations about what happened at the Indian schools that were set up in collaboration with a lot of religious organizations around the country? It works hand in hand. Uh, A lot of the times when we talk about what uh, happened in the past sense to uh, Native Americans, uh, we have this tendency to think about things that happened uh, centuries ago uh, versus, you know, what happened decades ago. You know, we have the, the termination of uh, the relationship between the United States and indigenous nations to whatever level of success. But then we also have uh, programs such as the 60s Scoop. Uh, so these are uh, programs in which the government was going out to uh, indigenous families and actually taking children from those families, uh, determining them unfit one way or the other. And so you have legacies where children were uh, growing up in foster situations or sent to boarding schools, uh, but ultimately with that goal of assimilation and making sure that uh, the children that were impacted uh, were disconnected from their from their homes and from from their cultures. From your kind of lived experience, how would you describe the relationship that you've observed between the government and the relationship to, you know, the sovereign leadership within tribal lands? You know, it's absolutely impacted my own lived experience thinking about, uh, you know, even my grandparents' uh, generation. Uh, Going back to my grandfather, he was our first, we call it tribal chairman. My great-grandfather was our last uh, traditional chief. So, you know, this legacy had forced our own tribal government to to reorganize uh, and to to move away from uh, traditional leadership. Uh, But also my, my grandparents' generation was one in which uh, my grandfather and most of his sisters uh, were not afforded the opportunities to go and have a formal education within schools. Tribes were put 
into this situation where there was a lack of resources in terms of basic education, in terms of, in terms of funding. We had to kind of like go through this mammoth task of, of going through all sorts of research to reorganize and assert our history to be able to reclaim uh, federal recognition. These were some of the challenges that we were faced with. And that's uh, back in Louisiana? Yeah, back in Louisiana. But, you know, the situation that was happening within my own tribe, it was an indication of a broader uh, sense of a need to reclaim and, and, and rebuild after so many different uh, official movements by the United States government. From my own lived experience, from my own grounding in Louisiana and in New Orleans, I was raised uh, Roman Catholic, uh, but we also had our old stories. We had our old songs. We know specifically where uh, on the map uh, our people emerged from the earth. Uh, so we have this sort of internal reconciliation of, of, of two worlds uh, that we walk in. One that's framed by the traditional stories and songs and one that's framed by uh, sort of everything that, that we're told from the outside, be it in public schools, uh, be it in the churches. Uh, these are things that, you know, kind of help us to understand uh, the way that others uh, see the world. But we also have to constantly like reconcile what's happening uh, in the world. We have to talk about it almost in two different languages. We have our own ways of understanding, but then we also have to kind of uh, translate for others how we perceive the world. Well, and I appreciate you joining me on this program to do that. I mean, in fact, that's kind of what I'm asking you to do, right? Yeah. (laughs) What did it feel like growing up and seeing and living in a world that has this narrative about Thanksgiving and that first Thanksgiving in Massachusetts. Yeah, uh, it's a bit of an odd world, especially coming from coming from a place like New Orleans. I remember some of my earliest memories of, of, uh, of, of Thanksgiving and kind of like uh, sitting down with my grandparents watching this Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and then kind of like saying, well, wait a minute, you know, this is not like a parade in New Orleans. Like, you know, nobody's throwing anything. Nobody's like having lots of fun or anything like that. It's just sort of like people waving at this sort of like procession of, uh, you know, these huge balloons that, you know, they're fun characters or whatever. But like, what exactly are you are you getting out of this annual ritual of, of, of these balloons going down the streets of New York? It's completely uh, sort of devoid uh, of even some of that that deeper mythology around the coming together pilgrims and, and 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 Wampanoag Indians at National Day of Mourning, we have a march where Indigenous peoples are coming together and talking about what's happening right now. This is not about sort of you know recorrecting the record. That that happens. Um, you know the story gets told from Wampanoag perspectives. Do you feel like that's happening more now? Yes, that that's happening more now. But the real important thing about it is to know what's happening right now and how that actually relates uh, to what happened 
uh, back at sort of the, the first so-called Thanksgiving, uh, whatever that is, you know, um, there were Thanksgivings that were called, uh, you know, not necessarily in the, what we know right now, sort of like the annual feast where everybody comes together and gives thanks. But there were Thanksgivings that were called after wars with native people. Uh, and, and Thanksgivings were called to sort of give thanks for, for victories and, 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 and the slaughter of, of native people. So there's a very, you know, dark history when we talk about like what Thanksgivings were, were called for. But, uh, what's also important, uh, when we talk about having that, that native rooted mindset and being able to talk about that, uh, for other people, when we go back to our old ways, when we go back to our old stories, Thanksgivings weren't just something that, that the pilgrims uh, imported uh, onto these shores, but these were these were feasts that n- native people had uh, to give thanks for the harvest, to give thanks for for community, uh, the ideals that we hold up for Thanksgiving. We can find them uh, in the traditions of native people, and so we're very very. Uh, thankful uh, for each other. That's part of kind of coming together uh, at Plymouth. It's kind of have, you know, this is our way of having a feast. I don't want to use the word Thanksgiving. Yeah, I hear you being really mindful about the words that you're using. But I hear you also talking about the power of gathering, the power of communing, the power of affirming each other and giving thanks, but also remembering. Yeah. Also remembering it's, um, yeah, we go through a lot of emotions. We go through joy. We go through anger. Uh, we go through mourning, uh, because again, what is happening? The Harvard Peabody Museum, uh, came out with an announcement, uh, saying that they had hair clippings of, of 700 children. So we have remains of ancestors that were lost to these residential and boarding schools uh, that as these announcements come out, uh, their memories get uplifted. But it's also very sad because we're we're in this realization that, you know, the remains are not necessarily resting at home. Uh, they're being held captive within higher institutions. Uh, so we have to have these moments to be able to come together uh, to be able to kind of uh, mourn, but then, you know, ultimately come out of it uh, with calls to action and ways in which we can uplift um, the, the efforts to, to preserve uh, the rights of Indigenous peoples, to honor the rights of Indigenous peoples. You've mentioned a few times that the Day of Mourning is a time to connect the dots between the past and present injustices. Is that something that you're seeing and using in your own kind of community's advocacy about these issues? Very much so. We would not have the, the progress uh, that we have on, on, on broader efforts, not just direct activism, but even sort of like, uh, legislative initiatives. You know, in, in Massachusetts, we have the Massachusetts Indigenous Legislative Agenda, uh, which is a slate of five bills, 
uh, two around education, one around uh, protecting Native heritage, making sure that our sacred objects stay out of auction houses, one to um, ban Native mascots, one to uh, establish a statewide Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, And these bills, these efforts that we have locally, uh, we would not have the progress that we had had we not been able to uh, work in coalition with other folks, with environmental justice folks, uh, with folks calling for racial justice. And we have been able uh, to have that, that language around our bills uh, and around those, those legacies that we're confronting uh, to be able to say that what we're proposing are systemic uh, solutions uh, to systemic problems. Uh, and we have found those, uh, those parallels uh, between calls for, for uh, you know, what we have uh, in terms of uplifting indigenous rights uh, and calls for racial justice, calls for reparations. Uh, you know, in, the, uh, in both black and indigenous communities, we don't just share sort of... Uh, intertwined histories but we we absolutely quite literally share uh bloodlines and, and heritage uh and so we have uh this need to to come together uh over these calls and to be able to kind of like um in, interweave uh a narrative uh that's coming from black and indigenous voices that is counter to the to you know eurocentric narratives that that were taught uh within public schools mm-hmm. so we're 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 coming up with that language we're coming up with uh those those stories uh from uh from the front lines and and we're hopefully uh, in the weaving that we're doing on these stories we're hopefully leaving a legacy for uh, for future generations to pick up on. I actually see some very distinct parallels between my experience over 30 years ago within public schools and what our children are going through right now. You know, our, our children are still faced with uh, disproportionate impacts of in-school uh, discipline uh, being, you know, held in detention or being suspended from school. Uh, they They are impacted uh, by uh, suicide rates uh, twice that of their white peers. And why? Uh, because, you know, my experience growing up in, in New Orleans, you know, I was very fortunate. I had a, a mother that was teaching within the schools that I was attending. But at the same time, I was seeing her very much, you know, having arguments with her colleagues, of fellow teachers that were telling her to her face, oh, your family is in India. Uh, you know, Indians died out, you know, years, you know, centuries ago, you know, all this stuff. So you cannot be real. Well, that, that sort of denialism is something that still um, is existing within our schools. We have families that come to North American Indian Center of Boston that are saying, I, I really, I really need help with my son, my daughter, because the, the situation has not necessarily improved. We're seeing some support from the student level. We're seeing youth support each other. But, you know, we still need to make progress when it comes to educators and administrators. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired from Interfaith Voices, my conversation with Jean-Luc Perret 
president of the board of the North American Indian Center of Boston, continues after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, my conversation with Jean-Luc Perit. He's a leader with the North American Indian Center of Boston. On November 24th, he'll be speaking at the 52nd National Day of Mourning Gathering in Plymouth, Massachusetts. That's a day that will include a prayer ceremony, a parade, a fast, speeches, and a communal meal. Perit describes the commemoration as both spiritual and solemn, a time to center indigenous voices and celebrate the spirit of Native people. As we get back to the conversation, Perit talks about his faith and its relationship to his Native identity and culture. You were raised in the Roman Catholic Church. Do you still identify as a member of the Roman Catholic tradition? Yes. How do you hold your Native cultural and spiritual beliefs that come from your tribe and from your family in union with your religious beliefs and the history of the Roman Catholic Church? I think I was very fortunate to to grow up in New Orleans, to grow up in a, a city that sort of embraces uh, the synchronicities between uh, black, indigenous spirituality, uh, ways of knowing those those spiritual systems, uh, and 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 Catholic systems. I think that you know when I was able to go out into the rest of the United States, uh, there was a very much a, a very different context in terms of like what it means to be indigenous and Catholic, and and of course you know to be able to 
to say that um, in a time in which people are, are very much calling for uh, change uh, from the Catholic Church to have reparations for all the children that were lost in the, the residential and boarding schools, to be able to call for the recension of the, of the doctrine of discovery, being in New Orleans, being, being Catholic, being Native, uh, and then having you know, sort of the passing of the seasons and, and doing things sort of like within the public square uh, that are kind of backed by, by, uh, by indigenous ways of knowing culture, spirituality, uh, and then also like, you know, the, the embracing of, of from the, the local uh, Catholic church in New Orleans was, uh, is, and it is still trying to be uh, the, the place that is upholding um, traditions such as um, Mardi Gras. Everybody knows it as like, okay, let's all go down and there's a big party and, and all of this. But that would not exist had it not been for the passing from the Christmas season and, and Epiphany and King's Day. And okay, here in New Orleans, this is when we, we, when we start selling king cakes and there are different parades that happen all the way up until that, that that day before ash wednesday and all throughout that that carnival celebration you will see expressions of of black and indigenous culture um and and black and indigenous culture so the talking about that bringing together of, of the two sometimes because of that shared history because of the, the kinship that we have what was that like for you growing up? It's empowering. It's something that you you wake up for early in the morning and 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 you realize, yes, there are, there are people that are coming to the city uh and they they are they have like their own purposes for being there, but for us this is this is more about the the passing of the seasons. This is more about sort of like okay, you know, this is our last opportunity to like have meat before we go into like the the lenten fasting season bring it back to you know my upbringing going through like all of the the carnival traditions and everything it's, it's very much about like that land-based knowledge and 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 thinking about like how time passes and and why are we thankful for the things that we're thankful for it's not about like okay, you know, this is the last Thursday of November and now we all have to rush to the grocery store to get our turkeys or whatever. It's not about like upholding like a capitalistic system. It's about coming together and it's about being there for a shared purpose to um, to basically kind of like mark, okay, this is this is something that we do and this is something that we're that we're called to do uh, because, uh, you know, this is an expression of, of, of land-based knowledge, and, and we're called to do this because we're part of the land. I was reading about the day of mourning rituals that the community has created that include fasting. There's a request that people refrain from eating unless they need it for medical reasons, and that later in the day that there will be kind of communal meal sharing. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the very intentional decision to hold a day of fasting as the country is focusing on meal preparation and consumption. You'll be gathered 
in Plymouth with many folks who are refraining from eating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, part of it is the calls to social justice, uh, you know, but a big part of it, uh, is the fact that when we do gather in Plymouth, it is a march of expressing resistance, but this isn't necessarily, um, a protest, uh, so to speak, but, what we do when we gather, we have a ceremonial way of uh, opening. We have prayers. We have tribal leaders that come and are able to uh, say prayers within Wampanoag. We have uh, sacred fires and medicines that, that are burning. And so we, we open it in this way uh, because this is, uh, um, you know, again, this is national day of mourning and, and we are, Mourning, um, the voices that you hear are voices that are representative of the nations that they represent. And so we have, you know, we're giving prayers, uh, for people to be able to, uh, say their words in such a way that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's good that it's, it's representative of, of the, all the people that are standing behind them. Um, so, you know, this is, this is why, you know, when we're calling for fasting, uh, when we're saying that, you know, in this part of the ceremony, please do not take pictures because, you know, there are fires that are burning. There are, there's altars that are there. There are people that are giving, um, that are giving prayers. So, you know, these are, these are sacred moments, uh, but they're grounding, uh, and we keep them, uh, throughout the day, um, through that, through that act of fasting. And then when we actually have the communal meal at the end, uh, then we're, then we're able to kind of like come out of, come out of ceremony, um, and kind of share with each other in the ways that everybody is, is sharing with each other throughout the day. But again, as you, as you, as you, you know, notice it's, it's a, it's a, a completely different context from, uh, waking up and thinking about, uh, all of the things that you have to do to get Thanksgiving dinner together so you can sit down and kind of consume and fill yourself with all the food. We're, we're filling ourselves, but it's not consumption and, and food that we're filling ourselves with. It's, it, we're filling ourselves, uh, with each other's words and with each other's spirits. Speak just for a moment about the diversity of beliefs that exist among Native people. In, the United States, we have uh, over 570 different uh, federally recognized indigenous nations. And we also have uh, hundreds of tribes that are either state recognized or non-recognized, yet still uh, continuing. Within each of these indigenous nations or within each of these tribes, uh, we have our own oral tradition. You know, all of us, except for those that are, that are Wampanoag, we're going to be guests uh, on that land, you know, we are all indigenous peoples, but we, we position ourselves as being away from our homelands, uh, and being within, uh, the, the homelands of, of the Wampanoag. Uh, and so, you know, uh, to kind of get, get to your question around, uh, land acknowledgement, um, you know, land acknowledgement for us is just a way of being, uh, it's just understanding that my people are, my people are elsewhere. My ancestors are buried elsewhere. But I am standing on this land and I'm standing on places uh, that, you know, if I were to kind of lose myself in, 
in the built environment, in the streets, in the buildings of the city, uh, that I would have very little knowledge about, you know, whether or not uh, there are there are graves that are underneath my feet, that there are ancestors that are buried where I'm standing. Um, but when I come together with other indigenous peoples that do have their ancestors buried here, uh, then, you know, I am able to understand that I'm a guest uh, within their lands. And so it, it, is, it is a way of being. It is a way of expressing uh, hospitality um, as both host and as, as both guest. And so when we kind of like zoom out to, you know, non-Indigenous peoples, you know, what can be done? Um, clearly, you know, it's, at first it's having that consciousness of uh, being a guest on others' lands. Well, whose land? Well, you know, it's not necessarily something that you can resolve um, by going to Google or going to, you know, a website that will, you know, promise to give you a map of indigenous territories around you. It's, it's getting out of your house. Uh, it is forming a relationship with land, um, forming the relationship with uh, the green spaces, with the trees, with the animals. Uh, but then also, you know, who are the people that are around you? Uh, because Native people are everywhere. What's the knowledge that's embedded within the land? What is your relationship uh, to land itself? Uh, because, you know, wh- whether we are host or whether we are guest, we're called to kind of express that those senses of hospitality. Whether we are host or whether we are guest, that's a really... Um that's kind of an interesting frame for thinking about also the intersecting identities that you hold, that Native people hold, living and kind of worshiping in different traditions, um, engaging in communal celebrations and national celebrations um, and Native celebrations that try to honor all those different dimensions of identity. You mentioned how these annual events now taking place in Plymouth are an opportunity to kind of bring attention and to connect the past to the present. Mm-hmm. One thing I've been hearing more is the centering of Native voices. So many environmental conversations I've had and in so many of the stories where the voices that are being highlighted and amplified include Native leadership, Native voices. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, because it's in Western science um, is kind of catching up with Indigenous ways of knowing. Why do we see um, the presence of Indigenous peoples more now uh, than ever? Uh, it's because we are we are coming out of this this cycle of of, of five hundred years, um, you know, living under you know uh, uh, policies such as the doctrine of discovery, codified in papal bulls. Uh, you know, it's still it's there, um, but you know that legacy is actually kind of carved up the world for the princes of Europe to kind of go out and, and evangelize and, and bring, you know, others that are, that are non-believers into, into the church. That was one, that was one purpose of it. The ulterior purpose was, is what we're kind of like talking about and addressing when we're talking about, um, 
in, uh, environmental justice. You know, when we're talking about, you know, stories about, let's say, for instance, what happened with Columbus? Uh, it wasn't just that he landed. It wasn't just that he murdered people, but he was forcing people to mine. Uh, he was extracting uh, minerals and resources uh, from um, from the lands. And you, so you see sort of like, you know, going back centuries, you see stories of like, oh, my goodness, you know, capitalism existed back then. Extraction existed back then. It was all under this guise that, you know, people that were coming from the princes of Europe and, and, and upholding the, the Holy Church, you know, they knew what to do with the land. Uh, and so it was sort of their, uh, their kind of duty to kind of teach uh, indigenous peoples what to do with the land that, that we've existed on, you know, since time immemorial. Our sustainable way of life was replaced uh, by the systems that we exist in now. And now we're having Western science come around in some cases and saying, oh my goodness, you know, people that have existed here since time immemorial actually had it right to begin with. And we should listen to them. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, my conversation with Jean-Luc Perrit. He's a leader with the North American Indian Center of Boston. On November 24th, he'll be participating in the 56th Annual Day of Mourning. It's a gathering that takes place on Coles Hill in Plymouth, Massachusetts. The day will include a prayer, ceremony, parade, speeches, and a communal meal. It will also bring attention to the legacy of settler colonialism and the ongoing degradation and environmental challenges facing Indigenous communities. As we get back to the conversation, we turn now to allies and coalitions and how young people in the environmental movement are working together in coalition and how things are changing. definitely have allies within the faith community, congregations, you know, having indigenous rights uh, facing groups, you know, we prefer kind of people be accomplices in liberation versus just allies. And what what does that necessarily mean? Uh, It means that, you know, you're not necessarily coming from a standpoint of guilt. Yes, the church has, has done these things. There are things that need to be apologies for. When you do act uh, as a person of faith and act in ways that are hopefully in solidarity with, with indigenous peoples, uh, it should not come from a place of guilt. Rather, it should come from a place of, of listening, of understanding, of, of compassion, of empathy, and acting, you know, in ways that, that follow the leadership of, of indigenous peoples, of elders, hoping that people of faith come into, uh, you know, our communities to, uh, to help and, and to uplift, you know, don't perpetuate historical harm with, um, with sort of your understanding of, of you know, how, how things should be. Rather, listen to Indigenous peoples, follow the leadership of Indigenous peoples, and act with compassion uh, because you've been taught to act in, in certain ways, to behave in certain ways based upon your faith. 
just uphold those principles. I kind of hear you saying if you're used to having power and making decisions about the way things ought to be when it comes to the environment, when it comes to addressing kind of the extraction of resources, when it comes to relationship with indigenous communities, what I kind of hear you saying is make room to listen, make room to integrate other voices and for other leaders to contribute to the ideas of what the path forward should look like. Yeah, make room um, and making room uh, also very much internally. Make room in your heart and in your mind. Act in ways in which your uh, faith uh, directs you. Um, but, you know, don't necessarily come with the, the intention of, of evangelizing. Do your work in a way uh, in which your, your faith compels you to do it. And going back to the, the ideas around land acknowledgments, to act uh, in that sense of, of hospitality as, as a guest uh, within somebody else's home. You know, what, what does your faith compel you to do uh, when you are in someone else's home? Ask if help is needed. Uh, if that if that help is accepted, uh, then follow the leadership uh, of the people whose whose home you are in. I can't help but want to ask whose home are we in? Uh, and it's um you know there's there's many different answers to that answer to that question. Of course, it's a it's a tough ca- it's a tough question. It's 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 a it's a tough question. It's a question that everybody has to has to be able to has to be able to answer. It's a question that um, if you're looking for if you're looking for something uh, to do, you know, on on Thursday of, of next week, on that last Thursday of, of November, you know, ask that very deep question of, of whose house uh, whose home you are in, you know, start with the obvious, you know, I'm in, I'm in the home of my family. Okay. On whose land, uh, are you in? Who are the people that came before you and whose ancestors might be buried, uh, on the land that, that you're walking on. Uh, and then, you know, pan out even more. Think about your relationship to the land. Think about like all of the trees that were there, all of the animals that were there. All of the things that um, that were uh, put there, uh, and then you pan out even more, and you get to the point where you're like, "Oh my goodness!" You know, we are in the home of uh, we're in the home of Creator, and we're we're thankful for that. But we're also thankful for uh, everybody and everything that has come before us that has uh, that has provided us with with the spirit and the foundation to give us this moment where we're able to gather, and whether we are mourning. Uh, whether we are um, joyful and putting out all of the, the news from our communities, or whether we're just simply just enjoying ourselves and our families, you know, um, be thankful for all of that. Much like the meditation on reflecting and thinking about the land that we're standing on, the land that we're sitting on, the home figuratively and literally that we find ourselves in. The knowledge of knowing whose land we are on is in and itself limited and that we need to not mythologize or romanticize the notion that it was just one people and that prior to settler colonialism across this, you know, 
across this land, there were many different communities and tribes that negotiated, didn't negotiate, agreed, didn't agree, fought, left, moved. And it's when you, when you step back and look at all of that and you kind of absorb the totality of it, it can leave you with the question of like, exactly what am I supposed to do now? Well, we, we can't we can't mythologize one way or the other, right? We're we're not mythological creatures in and of ourselves, you know. We're we're not perfect beings. The idea that oh my goodness, indigenous peoples fought and had differences, and yes, we, we have we have our distinct nations, we have our distinct languages. Of course, conflicts arise, and and we're human. So you know, there's there's all of that. But I, you know, when I hear that question, what I'm what I'm prompted to say. Um, is that we put so much faith in our in our books, what we can Google now <laughs> on, on the internet, uh, or what we can read on Wikipedia, and then kind of rattle off those facts. But what is um, undeniable, and when we talk about uh, indigenous ways of knowing, when we talk about land-based knowledge, some elders had told me previously that the languages that we speak are taught to us by the by the land itself. We have something that is that is undeniable, which is, you know, what is in the ground, it, what it's in, what it's in the fossil record. Uh, where are the the graves that were buried generations ago? That's that's undeniable. It doesn't mean that we should dig up everything, but what is in the ground is the record of the people that continue to exist on this land and continue to be. Um, at, at one with themselves. And so that's undeniable. Uh, and so when I kind of like talk about land acknowledgements and people kind of like forming relationships with land, it means getting out of getting out of the house, getting away from the books, getting away from getting away from the internet, forming the connection with the land and forming a connection with those embedded systems of knowledge within the land and learn from the land as, as indigenous peoples have, have learned from the land and to be able to express uh, those, those learnings uh, from the land itself. Um, that's much more compelling than, than rattling off facts that, you know, this, this tribe has existed on this land since time immemorial or, or since this date. And prior to that, you know, there was this other tribe here, you know, that's, that's, that, that gets, that gets, that there's, there's, there's so much, that you can get lost in. The way you just framed it made me think of something that the desire or the intention of doing a land acknowledgement isn't to replicate like scientific discovery. It is to reconnect with a tradition that may not be linear, right? When you talk about walking into the forest or standing on the earth, taking your shoes off and, putting your feet to the ground and feeling it. Those are intuitions. That's not doing a soil extraction and testing, you know, to see what the composition looks like. And it sounds to me as you're, as you just described that again, almost like a meditation of going into this conversation with land Mm -hmm. differently than we have been maybe trained to do. Yeah. And acknowledging 
the uh, more traditional ways of knowing, even within your own context. So, you know, kind of reflecting upon yourself as as uh, as a person of, of faith. What does your faith compel you to do? What are three things that you'd like to see people around the country doing next week on Thursday? Mindful that this weekend a lot of people are preparing for that week. Understanding that um, indigenous peoples are side characters in the mythology of Thanksgiving that we're all kind of called to perpetuate. Understanding that uh, indigenous peoples are alive and are, are thriving. Um, understanding that, uh, you know, that there are fights uh, that indigenous peoples are faced with that do not exist in a bubble that are very much uh, interconnected uh, with calls for uh, racial, social, economic justice, environmental justice. They're all things that we're that we're concerned about that very much uh, impact the lived experiences of indigenous peoples today. So, with those three understandings as people sit down and gather together uh, with their families kind of be mindful of all of the things that have brought us uh, to this point and then use that day use that use that communal moment to kind of reflect and then when you go back you know if you're if you're visiting family away from your home community Go back and then kind of like look around you and see what those local fights are. Start to get a sense of who the local tribes are and form deeper connections with the tribes and with the land. So understanding, reflecting, and forming connections. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to listen, to learn, and to think about all that you shared. I, uh, deeply appreciate your time and your willingness to share reflections, both personal, spiritual, and political. Yes, thank you very much for the opportunity to share. Jean-Luc Parit is a member of the Tunica Biloxi tribe in Louisiana. He serves as the president of the board of the North American Indian Center of Boston. To learn more about the Day of Mourning or to find links to resources from the Wampanoag tribe, visit this week's show notes. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and this week's producer, Kevin McCarthy. Sounds from this week's episode are from Audio Binger, as well as the 2021 Day of Mourning event and music from the Wampanoag tribe. To learn more about Interfaith Radio, visit us at interfaithradio.org and consider taking us on the go. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Just search Interfaith Voices. And if I could ask, leave a review and share it with a friend. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well. And I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.